Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as the author of The 400-Hour Workweek, which is my book about working three jobs and never sleeping. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I'm thrilled to have back Tim Ferriss, the host of the popular podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. He's also the best-selling author of books such as The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Chef, and Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, I and world-class performers. Much of his work is built around advice, and there are a lot of people looking for some guidance right now, so we were thrilled to have Tim back on Recode Decode. Welcome. Thanks for having me back. So, Tim, let's get started. Like, you, you've you been doing a lot on your podcast about coping and adapting and things like that, so let's just get into it right now. I want to talk about other things, too. I know there's coronavirus isn't the only thing in the world, but it kind of is. Um, so talk a little bit about how you're approaching this and in terms of your audience and yourself and, and different things that you're thinking about right now. I've been testing a lot. This is week six or seven of quarantine mm -hmm. for me. I ended up self-isolating early with my girlfriend because I have some pre-existing lung issues. And Around I when? Is this like January or, the, or February? No, this would have been, uh, I guess, mid-February. Mm -hmm. And I have concluded, and this this is not a tactic, perhaps. We can get into tactics. I okay. can talk about that. But that some degree of leniency with oneself and being gentle with oneself, <laughs> at least for me, has become guiding principle number one. And what I mean by that is in the early phases of this quarantine, for me, I'm reading about Isaac Newton and how the year of isolation during the plague was the most productive year of his life and found myself just self-flagellating 24 hours a day. <laughs> You're not Isaac Newton. Oh, no. Why the hell am I not Isaac Newton? What am I doing wrong? And uh, instead being consumed by news and seemingly schizophrenic slash manic depressive swings and optimism and pessimism. And uh, I find that in my experience, what you resist persists. So if I begin to get angry at myself for being angry, of course, that perpetuates the anger and so on and so forth. So the the sort of rule number one has been allowing myself quite a bit of slack uh, in, in the system for being unproductive, for being nervous, for being afraid, for being fatigued. 
so forth and so on. And and then there there is the the ritual and the routine which saves one from whim and distraction. And I think that's certainly what I've been focusing on is building scaffolding around which I can maintain some semblance of sanity. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Let me, how does it manifest itself in the first one, in the being kind to yourself? Let's talk about that one. How does that happen? The way that manifests is really as a, a referee in my own mind when aggressive self-talk begins on a loop, right? So, so if, what's, give if, me an exact example. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So an example would be there are three or four things that have been on my to-do list for probably two weeks now. Mm-hmm. And they they are just getting pushed from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. These are important things. I know they're important. They're all uncomfortable and I keep pushing them. Eventually they will get done. And I had a, a really good podcast that I recorded this morning. I was very happy with it. It took a lot of preparation. And in the hour or so afterwards, I slipped into berating myself for not doing these, these to-do items. And the gentleness with oneself took the form of basically a referee. If you can imagine a referee jumping in like, mm-hmm. hey now, hey now. <laughs> Let's let's call a truce here for a second mm-hmm. and recognize that your pattern, Tim, is beating yourself up and really sort of driving yourself from a place of scarcity or scarcity mentality as opposed to, so you're running away from things as opposed to towards things. And perhaps this is a good time, rather than beat yourself up about these to-do items like you've been doing all week, to try to bask in the positivity of what you just did in recording this right, podcast. Right, right. And so it's, it's really an edit function on my inner monologue. But how do you do that? Because I, I had that happen this morning. I'm moving to a house and I had finished stuff and I just didn't want to do it. And so I just lay there on the bed and stared at the ceiling. Um, and I was like, oh, I can't, you know, I'm super productive. I really am compared to a lot of people. But I, I felt like I was letting myself down. And then at I just decided, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to lie here and stare at the ceiling. And I'm just going to, and I'm not going to be mad about that box over there that I'm furious about kind of stuff. And it was really hard from a mental point of view to do it and not, again, pick up the phone and look at the news. And we'll get into tech stuff, how it impacts you later. But but it was a really interesting exercise because it was super hard to do that. It was super hard to like give yourself a break. It is. It is hard. And I think that almost any type A personality whether they write a book that is the 400-hour work week or the four-hour work week, if they are hardwired on some level for achievement or have been conditioned to focus on that, that it's, it's tremendously difficult to pause and appreciate what you've done or say to yourself, for today, this is enough. Mm-hmm. And much like the component ingredients or the prerequisites that go into certain types of achievement, I think that there are practices that you can piece together and with repetition become better at when it comes to these things, right? So for instance, I am doing more journaling than I perhaps normally would these days in the mornings. There's an option called the five-minute journal. There's another called morning pages, um, by Julia Cameron. And these end up turning into oftentimes 
a, a gratitude practice of sorts, which is on some level the opposite of an achievement practice. I don't know if that makes any sense, but mm-hmm. I do think they're sort of opposite sides of the coin. And then again at dinner, I'll sit down and uh, my girlfriend and I have been, as one might expect, cooking a lot more together and sitting down, lighting a candle, which we don't normally do. Right, right. right? Lighting a candle, making a ritual of eating, actually at a different table than we normally would because the kitchen table has been commandeered to become my office. My office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And we will then talk about our favorite frames of the day. Mm-hmm. Very simple. You have to. You just have to pick one moment that was a highlight of the day. Every day is going to have a highlight, even if they're all lowlights. There yeah. will be one that is higher. <laughs> and and these are, I, I suppose, counterbalancing practices that are helping to maintain some level of mental health. But I will be the first person to admit that there have been a lot of struggles. This mm-hmm. ha- this hasn't all been smooth sailing mm-hmm. and. It, it makes me think about a conversation I had with a Danish friend of mine several years ago because the Danes, and I want to say the Singaporeans, maybe the Costa Ricans have been put on the, in, the, in the gold, silver, bronze listing for the world's happiest people. countries. Mm-hmm. Right, world's happiest people. And I asked my Danish friend if he thought that was the case, and if so, why? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, that seems about right. And he said, the secret is low expectations. <laughs> and uh, so I, I actually think there's something to that and mm-hmm. that there's a place for optimism, but if you are consistently forcing yourself into an extreme of optimism, which we see a lot in the markets right now, for yes, instance, that you are in a way setting the scene for consistent disappointment. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you have to be cynic, but if you have low expectations and hope for the best, but sort of plan for the worst, mm-hmm. then you are constantly going to be pleasantly surprised. It's like if your stock drops 20% instead of 90%, wow, you're going th- yeah. to be thrilled. Well, I call that a negative. I, have, I always put the world into uh, optimistic pessimists, pessimistic optimists, optimistic optimists, and pessimistic pessimists, obviously. Yep. And I'm a, an optimistic pessimist, meaning mm-hmm. when something works, I'm like, wow, that was okay. Like, good. Like, yeah, but I expect the worst and hope for the best kind of thing, which is an interesting thing. All right, let's talk about the idea of getting, uh, one of the things that you talked about when you're talking about people being disappointed is you have a go-go culture in tech or, and and not just tech, but a lot of places, but especially in tech, this hustle porn, doing things like all the time and, you know, killing yourself. What happens when this comes flat up against a virus, which doesn't, doesn't care if you want to go, go, go? How do you recalibrate that? Yeah, well, I've I've spent, whether by design or by chance, the last few years trying to solve for this. Yes, you have. So I've, so I've had a little bit of practice, mm-hmm. but I, I would say that, let me speak first to what happens to a lot of people, mm-hmm. present company, meaning me included, and that is there comes a point where I think if you've been living life in sixth gear and you're, you're too gears, so to speak, or park and sixth, that you have trouble navigating life and many aspects of life and sort of pulling off of the Autobahn and then driving through neighborhoods at 20 to 30 miles an hour takes some practice if that's not what you're accustomed to. And I think that that is true for 
this type of circumstance where perhaps that something that would have taken, say, a decade or 20 years to retirement or to family to, uh, to cause a course correction is now happening in a very compressed fashion. And I, I think that's happening to individuals. I think that's happening to companies. I think that's happening to technological trends is we're, we're, we're seeing the compression of timeline. Mm-hmm. which is really, really interesting to me. So if people were going to get divorced two years from now, they're going to get divorced in the next two months. If they're going to get married in the next four years, maybe they get married in the next year. If you're co-founders and you were on the, the slow descent to dissolution, then you might have a spectacular implosion. And in, in all of these cases, if we want to reduce it to the personal, so let's say you're kind of crashing into this wall called COVID, you can no longer uh, travel it up at a million miles a second with the work that would normally consume you. Mm-hmm. In my case, because I do like traveling fast, I do, mm-hmm. I enjoy that speed, even though I've, for medicinal purposes, tried to ratchet that back a bit, I still find it very intoxicating. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think that that can translate into a lot of anxiety when you're suddenly held in place, as would be the case now. And I'll give you an example of how rephrasing questions for me has been very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that this is pretty high up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it can be applied to other, other things. A lot of people are panicking about money, finances, investment right now. And I, I felt, say, a few weeks ago that I had to make a lot of decisions quickly. And that was causing me, I think in part because I'd taken the speed from one compartment of my life and then being frozen in place, I decided to, well, subconsciously taken it and just start to apply it to other things. And I, I realized two things. Number one is Historically, I've made almost no good rush decisions. I've made a lot of good fast decisions, but no mm-hmm. good rush decisions. Secondly, and this came about through morning pages, I realized that I could change the phrasing of default questions I ask myself. For instance, instead of saying, what should I do with investing now? I could f- change that on paper and in my mind to what types of opportunities could I wait Say three to six months for or before examining that will still that I believe will still exist, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's a real example. That's something I journaled on, and it produced answers, right? So if if our minds are meaning making machines, if you ask yourself what the fuck is wrong with me, pardon my, I'm not sure if I can curse or not, but no, oh, please uh, go ahead. Yeah. So if you if your if your default question is what the fuck is wrong with me, your mind will serve up answers. It's kind of like if you ask Google, you know, why should I buy stock X or why should I not buy stock X? You're going to get a very long list of answers for both. So I have found that being trapped in a way at home leads you to feel trapped in your own head. And that is particularly true if you are asking disabling questions that perhaps with the busyness of normal life Mm -hmm. are less dominant. Right. They're just not there because you have all these distractions where you go places, where, which you don't have. The distractions are not available to you to allow right. you to do that. Well, one of the things that's interesting you just uh, is the idea of fast 
versus rushed. And I think one of the things that that tech likes to think about or, or the people you wrote about in the, your Titans book was the idea of how to make a decision, the, the proper way to make decisions. Um, and I think fast has always been looked at as important that you have to move fast, break things, all the all the different things you you read about. How does that change when you don't get to move fast, or is there a way to move fast in this environment? Well, it makes me, and I'm I'm glad you're asking this because it's therapeutic just for me to okay, good. sort of say it for myself. Well, as a reminder, I've been thinking Dr. a lot. Doctor Oz or Doctor Phil wasn't available. They're saying idiotic <laughs> things on Fox News, so I'm here. They're they're occupied. Swimming at the pools are our our national tragedy. <laughs> I'm yeah, they're they're, they're both they're both occupied, <laughs> oh, so I'm ha- happy to stand God, in. Uh, I Jesus. will say that there was there's an expression that was shared with me by a friend who's a former special operations in the military, and he said, "Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast," hmm. and that applies. Sorry, you need to take that apart for me. Break it down. Yeah, I'll take it apart. So, slow is smooth. So let's just say you're. In the, in the military context, if you were trying to do a drill with practicing uh, jammed rounds and reloading and switching between weapon systems, let's just say going from like a primary weapon, like a rifle of, of some type and mm-hmm. uh, to a, a, like a sidearm, like a, a pistol. If you try to rush the process or you go into it trying to maximize for speed at all costs, you're going to make mistakes, which will ultimately end up with a higher cost, both in terms of time and everything else. So the expression is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So you you practice doing things very slowly. And if you do things slowly without making mistakes, you can later optimize for speed, but you will very often beat the person who is just throwing technique out the window and trying to like crash mm-hmm. headfirst through the finish line. Right. And I think that is very applicable to investing. And I think that much of what we do is investing, whether it's investing capital, energy, attention, emotion, or otherwise. And so I have tried to use this forced pause as an opportunity to examine the value of the pause. And to also speak with friends to see how they are not just trying to survive this, get through it, but use it as a golden opportunity, a window of sorts that they can really benefit from. And I think when when you are forced into park and first gear as opposed to park and sixth gear, you can at least i've been trying to notice the uh, and and pick apart in not a not a negative way the assumptions that underlie a lot of my decision making mm-hmm. and just stop me if i'm not answering the question but no, please, the go ahead. but the my feeling is that covid whether it's covid-19 whether it is any period of wartime or a psychedelic experience, for instance, these are all non-specific amplifiers of undercurrents that exist in your mm-hmm. psyche already, mm-hmm. and that it brings to the surface 
a lot that perhaps, at least in my case, I already thought I dealt with. I'm like, haven't I dealt with this already? No, no. (laughs) I think amplifiers is an excellent term. Yeah. Yeah. And so I flail a lot if I try to think my way through all these things. So so journaling has actually been a, uh, almost like I'm Jane Goodall in, Here in, I am, day in, six. Yeah, on, yeah, in Gombe. The, monkey, I'm just, I'm the monkeys to, are restless. Yeah, exactly. Observing my own mind, being like, what yeah. the hell is this monkey doing? This is wild. Right. And I'm writing right. it down so that I don't reconstruct some very romanticized, positive picture of, of what's actually going through my head. I write it down and I'm like, this makes no sense at all. What I thought was the most compelling argument in the world makes absolutely no sense when you put it on paper. So those are some of the ways that I've been trying to benefit from the slowness as opposed to feeling afflicted by the slowness. Afflicted by the slowness. Okay, we're here with Tim Ferriss. We're talking about uh, coping techniques for around coronavirus. When we get back, I want to talk a little bit about resilience. And I do want to talk about some of his investments he's been making, especially in, um, in psychedelics and other things and what's going on with those when we get back after this. Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Tim Ferriss. He doesn't need any introduction, but I will. He's the best-selling author of many books like The 4-Hour Workweek and his most recent one, which was Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. He also has a podcast that's very popular called The Tim Ferriss Show. Um, So, Tim, one of the things I've been hearing from a lot of people, because they're trying to sort of shift in their, things are, we're shifting anyway. And you were talking about the idea of amplifying. And I think it's more accelerating. A lot of trends that were happening are now accelerating, as you were talking about, whether it's retail was in trouble before, now it's really in trouble. And it's sort of moving to where it is. Um, Things that tech was doing that were damaging are now trying to move towards being redeeming themselves. It's moving there faster. Talk a little bit about, and and one of the things they've talked about rather than growth and go-go is resilience. I've heard it from a dozen people I've talked to in tech and and, and everywhere, this idea that you have to be resilient versus, that's the key attribute going forward. Do you agree or disagree with this? What do you think about that concept? 
I agree. It's a nice buzzword. It's like grit. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I like resilience more than more than hustle. So I'll go mm-hmm. with resilience. I, I do like resilience. I stopped doing almost all my startup investing in 2015 because things mm-hmm. got very frothy, terms started getting very weird, mm-hmm. and the game became very difficult to play for someone like me who does not use other people's capital. Not mm-hmm. that that's a bad thing. I just that no. didn't didn't want to do that full time. And I think this is a very natural calling of the herd and it's easy mm-hmm. to it's easy to believe when you read in the media a hundred times a day that this is brand new for humanity, that mm-hmm. this couldn't have been predicted, shouldn't have been predicted, therefore all these huge companies should be bailed out, et cetera, et cetera. And resilience as far as I can tell, is the ability to withstand or benefit from the unforeseen. <laughs> it really has no uh, has some meaning within the context of of known knowns. But I feel like this is a cleansing moment for a lot of the glut in a bloated capitalist system. So mm-hmm. people who were over levered are going to have problems. Right, if you've taken on a lot of debt and you don't know how to service that debt, if I mean, I've I've heard some really wild stories in the last few months. I mean, I've also heard stories of like these famous money families, these dynastic wealth <laughs> money families who are getting margin calls and literally are effectively broke. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's wild, and that that is. That is a case study, and you can see that on a corporate level, certainly, and on a startup level, a focus on growth or greed to the exclusion of of resilience and and, and seatbelts, right? So, I, I think that pestilence is nothing new. If we mm-hmm. read the the lessons of history by uh, Will, I think it's in, and Ariel Durant, mm-hmm. like pestilence has been with us since day one, and it's going right. to be these types of sort of hundred year events. I think are going to be uh, somewhat uncontroversially are going to become more common. Right. And this is the type of thing that you have to have the ability to withstand, I I think. what, What are those tools you need? Now, you did all those interviews with everyone and they had certain qualities and we talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Are any of those changed from your perspective of the people in your book about the tools that they used? The tools now, now is this a, to develop individual resi- resiliency? Company or the resiliency? idea, you know, the, you, one of the your book was about the tools of Titan. You know, what they what what are their tactics and routines? Do they work here, or do they have to? Would you if you went back to them? Do you think they would be the similar, or is it like well, actually, when I said do this, maybe not so much. I I think they would still apply, and almost everyone in the book I know well thinks about worst case scenarios and capping the downside or mitigating the downside mm-hmm. very, very regularly. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you talk to Drew at Dropbox, I don't want to put words in his mouth, yeah. but if you talk to someone like Luis Vanan at Duolingo, or you talk to a lot of these folks, uh, they're very cognizant of downside risk. And even if you couldn't see it, a bat hopping to a pangolin hopping to someone in China and and knocking the entire world economy on its ass. I think that if you have practiced thinking about worst case scenarios, that even when the unexpected hits, you will be better equipped to cope and make good decisions under duress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I, I do think the toolkit still applies. And uh, it's like the, the more you sound like I'm really loving my military quotes today, but it's like <laughs> the more you sweat during peacetime, the less you bleed during wartime. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that there is something to that as it applies to the contemplation of possible black swan events Mm -hmm. and understanding tail risk, or at least looking at historical examples of tail risk. Like, are you the person, if I I look at some of the people who have done best in in our current climate with COVID-19, they're the people who bought books on the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu Mm -hmm. in mid-February, right? They were not necessarily, they hadn't decided to take COVID seriously in the sense that they're on the furthest end of the spectrum of what people would have then called alarmist, but they were, mm-hmm. they were educating themselves on historical examples to try to better understand what the worst case outcomes could be. And mm-hmm. I think those people have been, as far as I can tell, uh, quite well, if not well prepared, they've been very adaptable. Mm-hmm. What about the concept of the, the idea of being too alarmist? Now, I don't I think I'm not t- taking this too seriously, but right now today we have we have this. I don't even know if it's a real fight or not. This idea that we should open up and get going versus stay in place and wait till the storm passes. It, it seems to it's such a twitchy society we've built now that we can't even sit still for this important amount of time where it's communicable, where it's where it's vir- it's a virulent. Uh, virus here. What? How do you change that idea or get people to stay in place or have that Im- implication just to move constantly? This is this is a thorny one because uh, I, I feel like I used to have an informational advantage. Uh, let's call it a month, month and a half ago. But uh, once we get into the three D chessboard of politics and theater and sort of WWE style fights in the media every day. It ends up above my pay grade pretty quickly. But I will say that from an evolutionary standpoint, we are who we are with however many billion people on this planet because Mm -hmm. we have a tendency to overreact. We are underpenalized for overreacting and very, very penalized for underreacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a species, if you if uh, we're just looking at natural selection, so I think the natural inclination is to overreact. But as soon as things become politicized, I think that we over we are able to, in some senses, override or mute our our better instincts. But the question of like weighing deaths against economic collapse, it's 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 not a question that I really know how to wrap my head around, honestly. Um, Are you surprised that it's being? I've just been hearing from a lot of tech people. They're like, "Let's just get started." I'm like, "Are you thinking? Do you have children? Do you have yeah. like?" It was an interesting discussion, and I and at the same time, everybody wants to leave. Everybody wants to get out. Everyone wants to get back to normal, of which there isn't a normal. Um, how do you then decide when to restart? I mean, do you think about that? I mean, do you? Here you are. You've yeah. been there longer than other people. Yeah. Um, and it does take its toll, whether you realize it or not, it takes its toll heavily. Um, for some reason, that is sort of hard to grok why just staying home is so hard for people. Because yeah. um, it, it should be comforting. Being home should be 
wow, great, I've always wanted to stay home, but now I can't. How do you manage that idea of wanting to get started and what does that look like for you? Well, I'm in a very I'm in a very fortunate position because I don't have a large organization mm-hmm. that's dependent on working in person. It's been it's always been a distributed team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I think about I, so I can speak to a few things. I can speak at least to my personal predisposition mm-hmm. because I'm perhaps a an edge case, but nonetheless, I I get to decide when I reengage. And I think that the extremes, if I put myself in that category, can kind of inform the mean, but not vice versa. So I can choose to re-enter, assuming there is no shelter in place for everyone. Like if they opened everything up tomorrow, they said, you know what? This has all been a huge overreaction. All restaurants are opening back to normal. Back to the gym. I would not go to the gym. I would not go to restaurants I wouldn't believe that because there there have been so many points where we've been either misled through incompetence or misled through disinformation, like the claim that masks don't do anything. I mean, come on. So the position that I've had from the very beginning is a very conservative one, which is we have 100 plus years of data on influenza. We do not have anything approaching that. We don't even have one year of good data on SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So until I have more confidence in the conclusions, which swing all over the place on a weekly basis right now, I am going to assume the absolute worst and act accordingly. And which is I th- that this is very contagious and could kill you. Right. And I could be proven wrong, but the cost of me spending more time at home is very minimal compared to the cost. If, for instance, I take a serologic test, I test positive, great. I then assume, which I would say mistakenly, that I'm automatically immune and I re-engage. And then I get sick and I have not just lung damage, but kidney damage, possible brain damage, the, the calculus makes no sense, right? We don't know what level of exposure and antibodies confers immunity. We don't know how long that immunity, if it exists, how long it lasts. There's so many unanswered questions that I think even if the entire country were given the go-ahead to reopen, and we're already seeing this in China also, people aren't as dumb as politicians might assume them to be yeah. in the sense yeah. that humans really don't want to die. And if they are able to curtail their activities, I think they will curtail their, their activities. Now, on uh, so one of the questions I'm asking myself, for instance, is not how can I invest in the companies that have been damaged the most that are still good, that are 50, 51% likely to survive. It's mm-hmm. which companies, whether the economy reopens, whatever, whatever the hell that means, in six weeks or in six months can continue to do well. Right. So how do you think that? What is the, how, what is the, how does that calculation go? Well, I, I look at companies that have seen benefit from, uh, and, and a lot of my bets have already been placed. So it's really looking at a portfolio, even though I stopped in 2015, I have, let's just call it 50 bets looking at the portfolio and, and trying to determine who is who is actually seeing an uptick in 
customer acquisition and so on during this period of time. Duolingo would be a great example. Yeah, I was just thinking that when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah Duolingo is, is a fantastic example. I think there are quite a next door, I'm sure, is another. And you know, the list goes on and on. Then there are companies that are having a tremendous amount of difficulty, right? I mean, I still have a large stake as an early advisor in Uber. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I haven't sold a right. majority of it. And that could prove to be a mistake, but I'm still optimistic for, for a bunch of reasons. It, might, it could be confirmation bias and wishful thinking, but mm-hmm. that's a trickier one. That's trickier than Duolingo. There are right. more. So variables. talk about that one. Talk about how you think about that then. About Uber? You're like, oh, well, people will get back to it, right? Is that your is that your basic thinking or my thinking, because I've been tracking this for a very long time, right? Mm-hmm. So I was able to go to mostly cash in mid-February mm-hmm. outside of a few large positions like like Uber. And um, I, I sold a portion of that so that I would have liquidity for other things. But I just I was a very deliberate choice on my part to hold on to the majority of it. And the the way I thought through that, and it's important to take this with a huge grain of salt, sure. right? Because I I basically, I mean, I found the Willy Wonka golden ticket, and I'd mm-hmm. like to say that's from skill, but there's a huge, mm-hmm. huge element of mm-hmm. luck and chance and everything involved. But nonetheless, the way I thought through holding that was, and I had some some very good advice around this. Well, we'll see if it's good advice, but is that Ride-sharing, in some respects, is very crowded, mm-hmm. even though you have effectively a two-horse race in the United States. Just as the herd is being called in just about every sector, that will be true in ride-sharing. And Uber is very, very well capitalized. So, for instance, they also have Uber Eats as an augmentation to the ride-sharing revenue. So before I decided to hold, I was like, all right, stock's at 40. Let me rehearse. And this comes back to kind of Mm -hmm. stoic rehearsal of the worst case. Let me visualize what I will feel like if this goes to 14 or $15. And am I, I will want to sell when that happens. And will I be able to not sell? Mm -hmm. And so I mentally rehearsed that. And I thought through, like, Dara, I consider him a smart guy. I, I don't know him personally, but he's heavily incentivized. He, I, th- I think, has made some very smart decisions. If the entire ride-sharing business needs to begin to constrain expenses, you know, perhaps Uber then, number one, built up their delivery business, Uber Eats, to an even greater extent, Number two, there are a lot of assumptions in this, right? Number two, their competitors, possibly including Lyft, have to blink first with certain types of cost cutting, like, say, suspending autonomous driving R&D, which is a huge cost center. And that alone would fundamentally and greatly change the balance sheet for both of these companies. And... I don't see ride-sharing disappearing. It's very right. hard for so me you're, to see. So it. directional, you're talking about things that are directional. You're thinking directionally. I'm thinking directional. I'm also thinking that higher unemployment could in some respects lend itself to a greater number of drivers. And I, I would anticipate, like if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about my fear or 
hesitation around, for instance, going to movie theaters. No fucking right. way. Um, anytime <laughs> I soon. I wasn't going before. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But let's just say movie theaters, public transportation, yeah. right? Subways, buses, et cetera. I think that as soon as commuting exists again, even in part, let's just say 10% of the workforce goes back to commuting. If they do not have their own cars, I think there's going to be tremendous hesitancy around public transportation if people can afford something like UberX. And Uber will do what ride-sharing is doing in Asia. They will likely... Add masks. uh, Add masks, plexiglass or plastic screening. And it, it will get to a point, I think, where it feels certainly safer than public transportation. Right. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Now, yeah, this we is could, great. I just want to walk someone through how they're thinking of it. Yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it. Now you're still waiting to make investments, correct? You're just sort of sitting No, I'm, I'm making investments now. You are. And what, yeah. give me an example of just one investment. And then the next section, I want to talk about your investments in uh, psych, uh, what you're doing at John's Hopkins. Psychedelics, yeah. Psychedelics. So give me one example of something you've just invested in and why. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give, I'll give you an example. So I, uh, I invested, for me, it took a pretty large position, actually, mm-hmm. in... Uh, now, I have to say this because you know some of the world's best investors. Okay. There's no reason I should have confidence that I'm one of them. But I can walk you through my decision making, but I just want it to be really clear to people right. that you know this this is this is Tim kind of playing this is Tim. stock picker. Right. So I, I I will be making more investments in startups, ideally with the capital to be deployed in say a year's time. I think mm-hmm. that I, I don't want to invest in companies that were bloated a year ago, right. necessarily. However, there are certain companies I find really appealing on multiple levels. I'll give you one example, and that is Shopify. Ah, yes. And I'm about to interview the CEO. Yeah, Todd. Toby. He's, Toby, he's, Toby, sorry. Yeah, he's spectacular. And I was the first or first of two advisors to Shopify when they had eight or nine employees and then all the way through IPO. And then I, at the time, uh, I wouldn't say panic sold, but I sold pretty soon after lockup because at the time it was a really meaningful sum of money to me. And that was at Mm -hmm. like $30 per share. So if you look Mm -hmm. at Shopify now, I think it's trading at $540 a share, something like that. (laughs) Well done. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. I sold at 30. So oops. Now the, the, but the decision, this is where I I think uh, this period of time has also been valuable for me is to, to really look at how people are making decisions, not necessarily the outcome of those decisions, because you can have good process and bad outcome as you might have in poker, for instance, and you can have really bad process and just Win. Win the lottery. And mm-hmm. that doesn't reflect skill. You see that all right. the time in startup right. investing. Right. So I, I wanted to think through process. And I, I don't regret having exited the Shopify position then because it was a real life-changing sum of money for me at the time. It made sense. But I've gone back in. And uh, if the guys hear this, the, the, this they'll, they'll probably crack a smile because I haven't talked to them about it. So you're the, kind of the first one to know. But when they suspended their guidance, that's the right term, a few weeks ago, they were really punished for it. And I find it very difficult, given the management who I believe in so strongly, given that we are, and I'm getting the numbers wrong, but let's just say somewhere between 17 and eight and 20% e-commerce, whereas China is mm-hmm. like 79%. 
mm-hmm. that Shopify will be smaller two to three years from now. It seems very unlikely to me. Now, whether the stock price currently will sort of reflect that as a multiple of what it is today, who knows? But uh, so I bought, uh, I bought the stock right after they suspended their, or shortly after they suspended their guidance and have been looking at, there are companies I've been looking at for a very long time that I believe in. And if I feel like they're being unfairly punished, then I might put money in. All right. Well, that makes sense. We're here with Tim Ferriss. He's obviously a well-known author and also has a wonderful podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show. When we get back, I want to talk to him about his investments in psychedelics, which he's doing with uh, with uh, Johns Hopkins, um, and how he thinks that's going to go, uh, uh, especially when we're thinking about healthcare in general and mental illness and things like that, uh, and mental problems people have and depression. It's a great topic to talk about now. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com slash us slash careers. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. We're here with Tim Ferriss. We're talking about a lot of things, but I do want to talk to him about his investments. Uh, I've wanted to talk to him for a while in in psychedelics, that what he's doing. Talk to me about where you are right now. And a lot of people, you know, it was written about at the time when you made these investments. Uh, talk about what you're doing exactly and why you're doing it and where you think it's going to go. Because it's really interesting right now, because especially around the opiate addiction issue. And then right now people need more inspiration. And some of this stuff looks pretty promising. It does. Uh, I, in my entire life, have never been more interested in and dedicated to any field. Uh, and by field, in this case, I mean psychedelic science, research related to psychedelic compounds. In that category, you would find psilocybin, which is the psychoactive component of so-called magic mushrooms, psilocybin cubensis, uh, generally, although for studies they use synthesized psilocybin, LSD certainly, uh, although that has more political baggage, so it's not as readily sure. researched, although I will be funding some some research related to that uh, overseas, actually. And I've been principally involved with two 
institutions. I will be involved with more, but Imperial College in London with Robin Carhart Harris, they started the first, the world's first dedicated psychedelic research center. And more recently, Johns Hopkins with Roland Griffiths, uh, Matt Johnson, and their, their entire team, which is incredible. And the, the reason for my involvement could certainly speak to my personal experiences, but the data speak for themselves in the sense that if we look at, as a category, what you might view as intractable psychiatric conditions, these are mental illnesses or psychiatric disorders that have no, tr no true effective treatment. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, opioid use disorder, or opioid addiction, eating disorders, like anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, treatment resistant depression. And these have all been failed by, I think that's pretty uncontroversial to say, failed by conventional treatments. Yes. And the, the results that you see, say in smoking cessation, uh, at, at this point with some of these psychedelic compounds, I think will force us in a way to completely revise our understanding of how these, these illnesses exert their effects, why they manifest and their possible treatments. I mean, you, you have uh, the degree and duration of sobriety correlated to the strength of mystical experience, for instance, with mm -hmm. psilocybin. And uh, you can see a duration of effect in terms of antidepressive effects for something on the order of six to 12 months mm -hmm. or longer with two or three sessions. There is no real biochemical explanation for that with mm -hmm. current psychiatry. And that's very exciting to me. So what what got you doing doing this, making these investments? Now, I've, I've interviewed Michael Pollan and many other people in, in this area. It, one of the things that, that fascinates me about it was the, one is sort of the titillation effect, like you're saying, the criminalization of LSD and, and sort of the, the links to, you know, what was going on in the Nixon administration. He was talking about how we never really got a chance to really study these drugs. How do you, one, overcome that idea? Because whenever I say, this is really, when I give speeches, I said, this LSD stuff is really, everyone giggles. I don't know why, ha, 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 drugs. And I'm like, no, we've never studied them in the way they need to be studied. And what if they're the way, the way it works out if you do it in a, in a medical setting, if it's done not as, you know, just we're having fun, everyone gets high kind of thing. And it, it's a really interesting that that's one is to overcome. One is the, is the societal affliction of not wanting to go there. Two is the, you know, criminalizing a lot of these things. And three is the idea that it gets sort of cast as like Silicon Valley people wanting to come up with the next startup idea or something like that. I can't yeah. tell you how many people have said, let's do ayahuasca to care and we'll think of a startup. I'm like, oh, you know what? I would love to talk about PTSD or depression or yeah. solving, you know, real real problems, which is not, I mean, I'm glad yeah. you come up with ideas like that, but talk a little bit about why, how do you overcome, one, is societal ideas around these drugs, secondly, the criminalization part in this country, mm -hmm. especially, and how you get real money to do actual research on these things. 
Yeah, I'm happy to speak to all of that because I've had to think a lot, a lot about all of this. Uh, for the Hopkins Center, I helped raise about half the money, which was eight, eight and a half million on on my side. And I, I think that rate, let me address these a, a bit out of order. So raising the money is uh, on some level easy for me to do. Uh, once we get up into larger amounts, say 30 million, $100 million, it becomes more challenging, but it's been easy-ish to do it because a lot of science is saturated. Mm -hmm. If you want to apply funds to a breakthrough in cancer research, you almost, I mean, you have to be a centimillionaire or a billionaire to, I think, have hopes, at least if we're looking at the, the kind of the top level current research that is known to have that type of impact. Whereas with psychedelics, I think a, a very, in some ways, very analogous comparison to the uh, to, to illustrate the opportunity in terms of minimal dollars and maximal impact is Catherine McCormick in the development of oral contraceptives. I mean, she put in, I want to say the the equivalent of something like twenty million dollars over ten years, and fundamentally, I mean, bent the arc of history. Right? I mean, it's 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 impossible to overstate the impact that all that had. And importantly, this comes to your legalization question. The oral contraceptive was first approved by the FDA not for contraception, but for menstrual disorders. So there are scientific mechanisms through which you can, for instance, get drugs reclassified from one schedule to another. And my goal, therefore, has been to avoid politics as much as possible and really focus on the phase three trial medical route uh, for which there are mechanisms to get these things reclassified. The, so the fundraising was, I think, easier than expected because one, uh, you can point to a very asymmetric bet, which is appealing to techies and also appealing to people who are accustomed to investing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I can put in a million and I could potentially have a billion dollar impact and I know my loss is capped at a million and it's mm -hmm. over a few years. Okay, fine, let's do it. I'm also playing with a lot of my own money. I mean, it's, it's not playing. It is, right, you are. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's a significant putting, amount of money. Yeah, do many, you, so, yeah. So, so the idea is to put this money into these, what, uh, Johns Hopkins, for example, you're putting the money in and what are you researching? What are they using? It for? Yeah, they're 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 uh, they are doing studies related to treatment resistant and major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, they are looking at and will be looking at uh, eating disorders. They will be looking at and specifically psilocybin applied as an intervention to all of these uh, with very good study design. Opiate or opioid use disorder. So let's just call that opiate addiction. And so my, getting my, rid of the stuff that was supposed to help, that, you know what I mean? Like yeah. correcting yeah, drugs exactly. that were used and, in that. Yeah, and, and I have a lot of personal connection to this because my uh, best childhood friend died of a fentanyl overdose a few years ago. My aunt died of Percocet plus alcohol about a year and a half, two years ago. Mm -hmm. So these things hit close to home and I think they hit close to home for a lot of people. When I was at the Milk and Global Conference a year ago or maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, 
I mean, this is a highfalutin crowd, right? Yeah. And it's fancy, I asked, man. fancy, fancy crowd. And I asked, I, I asked the crowd first, I said, raise your hand if you know someone who is depressed, even though they take antidepressants. And basically the whole room raised their hands. And then I asked, raise your hand if you know someone who, if you know anyone who has had their lives damaged or destroyed by opiate use or alcohol, every hand goes up, right? These, these are afflictions and mortal risks that do not discriminate based on socioeconomic class. It's across the board. So, uh, so some of the studies, uh, Alzheimer's will be another study. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll be looking at the impact of psilocybin on, on Alzheimer's and specifically depression associated with Alzheimer's. But as secondary outcome measures, they'll be looking at cognitive changes, if any, which is very interesting to me. And these are all really big problems right. uh, and very exciting opportunities. And the idea that you could take a few million bucks and begin studies, and I, I want to give credit also to the, uh, uh, I, I can't ever remember the order, if it's, if it's the Alexandra and Stephen Cohen Foundation or mm -hmm. the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation, but the Cohen Stephen Foundation. Stephen Cohen, then it's Steve first, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right, Stephen. So in any case, the Cohen Foundation put up the other 50 to 60% of the balance mm -hmm. to support this entire center. So how do you get society to think about this and government to think about it in a more you know, to not to move away from the the the, the generalized imagery of these of, of magic mushrooms, LSD, etc., as sort of a recreational uh, thing, either way back when for the hippies or now for tech people or or whatever. How do you move it to the mainstream from your perspective? Because that's the goal, presumably. Yeah, I, th I think that you take it one step at a time, so you don't you focus on the thin end of the wedge that you're using for legal reclassification reclass first, mm -hmm. in the sense that before you can get it to mainstream, you really need research to be faster and less expensive. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, I might be getting the numbers somewhat wrong, but to use synthetic psilocybin for research purposes, so you have to operate within the parameters and approvals of the DEA, the FDA, et cetera, Instead of the $50 it might cost to get that on the street in the form of chocolates mm -hmm. <laughs> with mushrooms embedded, I mean, it's going to be like $1,500 person or uh, maybe many thousands more. It's, it's, it's astronomically expensive and very, very slow. So my objective is to focus on, I am going to answer your question longitudinally, but let me answer this first, which is pushing the science ahead so that research can be done more quickly, less expensively. And looking at that, at that as step number one, once the data have been collected, at least based on some of the studies that have already been completed, the, the, the results should speak for themselves. And if we, if we use acronyms that have a lot of political historical baggage like LSD, it's a lot harder, which is part of the reason why psilocybin, which is hard to say even if you're used to saying it, and even rather harder to spell, yeah. right, rather than mushrooms, is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very neutral term. Mm -hmm. right? And yet the effects are, are somewhat similar. I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're not identical. Uh, LSD is, is much more promiscuous from a receptor standpoint than is psilocybin, but they, they are quite similar. They can both be used, for instance, with alcohol use disorder uh, 
And in fact, little known fact, I don't know if Michael Pollan mentioned this when you spoke with him, but Bill Watson, the founder or at least co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, at one point wanted psychedelics to be one of the steps because he found sobriety through mm-hmm. a psychedelic experience. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of research before the kibosh was put on it by Nixon mm-hmm. related to alcoholism mm-hmm. and LSD. But using psilocybin or molecules that have less political baggage is very helpful. But even if they have a lot of baggage, like MDMA, right. aka ecstasy, when you see the effects on PTSD, uh, for instance, and maps.org, is is a fantastic organization, five hundred one c three that that focuses on MDMA and PTSD. You see, and say their phase two trials, uh, patients who on average had seventeen years of PTSD, often severe or extreme symptoms. That means effectively non functional, like mm-hmm. curled up with the shades drawn, unable to go to work. Who uh, I, I can't remember the exact percentages, but I mean double digit percentages who were asymptomatic after, again, one to three sessions. One mm-hmm. to three sessions of four to six hours in duration with therapy before and afterwards. But that is so staggering compared to anything else that when you take something like that, even with the connotations that MDMA might have, if you take that to, say, the VA, you take that to organizations who are spending billions upon billions of dollars on treatments that do not work. Yeah, and then keeping people in boxes. Then it's just out of enlightened self-interest and economic benefit, I think think the data- And how has it helped you? How has it helped you personally? Well, I would say it could be a long conversation, but I'll give the upshot. The upshot is I've struggled with depression, in some cases, severe depression, almost my entire life and mm-hmm. almost committed suicide at the end of college. I mean, it was very, I've, I've a, a lot of, a lot of experience with the darkest of darkness. And uh, I, I, so I would routinely, let's just call it a few times a year, have these dark night of the soul periods that could be mm-hmm. really extended and, uh, I mean, god awful, and I understand in many ways self-created, but nonetheless, yeah, they are uh, very dark, and I haven't had any such experiences in the last five to six years. So, I mean, that 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 defies any conventional explanation. Mm-hmm. It really does, and that doesn't mean it's magic, right? It means that it's underexplored, and. Uh, that's part of the reason that I feel so strongly about this. And uh, there are other compounds that I'm not funding research into, which I also find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I will say for suicidal ideation, people who are suffering from acute suicidal ideation, I think ketamine is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And there are some researchers in uh, the Bay Area who have done a lot of good work with ketamine. And there are legal ketamine clinics for chronic pain as well, very interesting. But these compounds, particularly those with decades of safety data, well, in some cases, if we're looking at use by indigenous, we're looking mm-hmm. at hundreds and thousands yeah. of years of use. But, but we ignore them, as you know. That's our goal yeah. in our society. Yeah, right. Yeah. We so, ignore their but, experiences. But, but let's just say psilocybin and ketamine, um, very well tolerated overall. 
And given how inexpensive they could be, the risk benefit is so attractive. I mean, it's like if anyone is is looking to, like where do you have the opportunity to to have billions of dollars of impact with a million dollars? It's just, there aren't that many places. That is a really good way to put it. So when do you think this is going to shift do you imagine this is there's a lot of people involved and i hear it from various people but in terms of a real shift by the government by uh institutions using johns hopkins to me was a big sign of like this oh, yeah. is you know a big deal i think there will be a shift in academic funding i mean quite frankly this covid situation is de i'm not going to say derailed but at least delayed a number of very 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 big initiatives and announcements and that's true across the board for everything. So, um, so it goes. But I've already seen, and I do think that Imperial College as well as Hopkins have played a role in this. And that was kind of the intention all along, is to put a lot of effort into this real top tier research and treatment university, i.e. Johns Hopkins, so that there's social proof and uh, proven reputational upside for other universities to do, to do the same. So I think that we are already seeing a tide shift in how psychedelic science and research in psychedelics is treated among academic circles, which is a big deal, actually, mm-hmm. because younger researchers now see a possible career in right, focusing on this. this. Right, which is part of the problem, yeah, right? So, That's, you don't yeah. want to get near it uh, because oh, yeah. it used career. to be a compl- It used to be a suicide mission. That, then it was a, a dead end. And then it was unattractive and now it's attractive. So that's already happening. On the federal level, if the science can be funded properly, I think we will see some major progress in the next two years. And culturally, I mean, quite frankly, I think the cultural shift, there's a risk. The good news of, with the cultural shift is, is it's happening incredibly, incredibly quickly. The bad news is it's happening incredibly, incredibly quickly. And you may end up in a situation where a lot of overzealous, uninformed, short-term thinking and use related to psychedelics derails some of the, the scientific right. progress. As in, we really could use some magic mushrooms right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like the last thing we need is some like senator's son or daughter yeah, to like yeah, d- do yeah. something stupid and run yeah. out into traffic because they right. thought ayahuasca was good for using for brainstorming like startup ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just that's that was that's a hard a no by me, by the way. One guy yeah. having lunch, yeah, good for like, you. Let's do that. I was like, not with you, not for yeah. sure with you. And anyway, but I was, <laughs> but I still don't want to close my mind to the idea. But I think some of this stuff is so promising, and it's really it's fascinating the historical elements of this stuff, how much yeah. it's been badly. Bad PR around this stuff. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Um, and and how much people have to. I hate to say, open your mind to this, something like this, but really think about some of these issues, especially you know now with so much stress and anxiety is going to come out of this, and so much talk about PTSD. We've got to find really interesting ways and sci- scientifically proven ways. Whether it's COVID nineteen, whether it's opiates, not opiates, excuse me, psychedelics. Uh, no, no opiates is what I would hope for. Um, you know, it's really important to be thinking really hard about how to how to cope with what we're going to be coming out of, which is, which I think this is a really promising yeah. area. Anyway, Tim, I don't want to keep you any longer. I really appreciate it. Let me ask you one last question. If you had, uh, like, give me two tips to get through this. You, you're like, since you've been at it longer, or do we just, yeah. just you know, I just I just posted something where a girl said, I made a song up, and then all she did is scream. Um, what do you have? <laughs> I saw that, I saw that. 
<laughs> was it in Spanish? Was it in Spanish? Uh, no, no, but I love a Spanish version. Uh, there's one, I could do yeah. it in any language. It would sound okay. great. Yeah. Uh, give, it, give me two or three tips, but you write books about tips. Did you jump in a cold <laughs> pool? That was one of your tips. I do. I do, actually. I, I, I recently did I, that. I hate I to actually, say that. I actually, right behind me. Oh, you have a cold there, pool. There's a chest freezer that has been repurposed with caulking. It was being caulked today uh-huh. so that I could turn it into a cold plunge because cold it's getting, plunge. getting warmer. Oh, did you go here. to one of the, the, the places where you get froze at? The, oh, the cryotherapy? Yeah. No, I, I mean, cryotherapy is fine. I prefer cold plunges. You have to be very careful not to electrocute yourself if you're using something that is plugged in. Yes, fair but, point. But uh, that is something that I use, but I realize it's not within reach of a lot of folks. It's not right. practical if you're on the right. 17th floor in New York City or something. Just turn on the shower cold. And like you could, do, this, you could do a cold shower, but I'll give, right. I'll give a few tips right. for right. things that have helped me okay. a lot. Okay. The first would be morning pages, mm-hmm. and uh, I will show you exactly what that looks like. Morning, uh, yeah, the artist way. Morning pages. I've written a blog post about it on Tim Blog. People can just search my name in morning pages. But morning pages. I won't spend a lot of time on it right now. Sure. Julia Cameron, the artist's way. One of the practices that is fundamental to that is morning pages, and it's more therapeutic than I could possibly give it credit for. It's it's really remarkable. Okay. That's that's one. Two is some type of movement every two hours mm-hmm. or so. That's an arbitrary choice, but it, it could be five push-ups. It could be five jumping jacks. It could be taking, as my girlfriend does and actually does with other people on Zoom, which is great. They love it. It's like a dance break for one song. It could be anything, <laughs> but moving... Yeah. Moving. Moving. Uh, mind, body, not two separate things. They're very intertwined. If your biochemistry is off physically, your 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 cognition is going to be off. Your emotional calibration is going to be off. So movement is really, really important. Okay. You can take Zoom classes as I am in 45 minutes with my girlfriend for acro yoga. You can do anything via one of Zoom, mm-hmm. Skype, join, whatever. Fun. Super fun. So yeah. Try to move. That would be another. I mean, that's two. But I'll I'll give one more, which is there's a book. Actually, I'll, I'll give two more. Can okay, I give go, two more? One that has nothing minute. to do with me, yeah. and one that is just right. a shameless. All self-plug. right, shameless plug. It's fine. Yeah. All right. So so three is a book called Awareness mm-hmm. by Anthony Demello, D E M E L L O. It's an incredibly short read. It's very easy. And I've read it probably 10 times at this point. Mm-hmm. I have an entire bookshelf in the guest bedroom at my house full of this book so people can take them with them. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, uh, it's very impactful for a lot of people. It doesn't catch okay. everyone at the right moment, but that's, that's right. one. And the last is. You know, it's funny. I have all, yeah. I have, give away Strunk and White's Elements of Style, but go ahead. Stop that is a good one. Also a great one. <laughs> Also, a great. One. I don't think it's yeah. quite as inspiring, but it's, you do do better grammar. Yeah. You do better grammar, and that's my feeling. You do better grammar, of, you're happier. It's part of awareness. So, awareness by Anthony DeMello. and then the yeah. last one would be sign up for my newsletter and get fun right. stuff sent to you every Friday. All right. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, what is that? Give it up. Yeah, Give it up. It, it's. It's it's called Five Bullet Friday. There are about um, I mean yep. between one and a half and two million people who who get it every week. I get and it, it's, and it's just the five favorite things that I found that week. So you can find that at Tim.blog, 
forward slash I love Friday. All right. And it's just a dose of optimism and fun in a world of doom and gloom. All right. Thank you on that note. All right, Tim, thank you so much for coming on Reach Out DJ. This has been a really fascinating discussion on lots of different things. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Tim, where can people find you online? But you just said that one. Is there anywhere else? Yeah, Tim.blog is everything. You can find me, or it has everything. You can find me at T Ferris, two R's, two S's on Twitter, and then uh, Tim Ferris, two R's, two S's on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else. Great. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.